Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. It's difficult for us to wrap our minds around, but the fact is, God does not need us. He does not need our abilities, our sentiments, our help, our efforts, our offerings, our deeds, our families, or our communities. God needs nothing from us, yet provides everything for us. In Scripture, He freely offers Scripture to every generation. In Matthew, if we do not submit to this gift, it's self-presented as a judgment against us for our sake. We are warned ominously by John the Baptist. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 237 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Years ago, Richard, when I first became a priest, one of the first lectures I gave at a retreat was entitled Judgment as Hope. This is a theme that I spent a lot of time grappling with early on in my ministry because I was trying to convey something that we learned together at seminary, that the hope that is offered by the words of scripture, by the teaching, can't be separated from the judgment that is brought against us by the words of scripture. A modern hearer of the Gospel of Matthew, when they hear John the Baptist refer to the religious teachers as a brood of vipers, has one of two reactions. Either they cheer and say, yeah, stick it to the man, which is a misreading of Matthew, or they cringe and they say to themselves, why is he being so negative? Both reactions betray not just a misunderstanding of Scripture, but a kind of crisis for the hearing of Scripture in our current historical context. The current historical context is that when we think of judgment, the referent is always human judgment. And that's a problem because if I judge my brother or my sister in a very literal way, I benefit. I can puff myself up. I make myself better off. In Scripture, the referent is God. And if God judges, he doesn't benefit. God, by definition, in Scripture, has everything at his disposal. So whether one person is up or another person is down doesn't matter to God. The second point is the question, why does God judge then? I mean, God can just let people do their thing, right? And people say, oh, they need to be kept in line or whatever. No, they don't need to be kept in line. The point of judgment when it comes from God is that it teaches. Even when God shows grace, it's still a teaching. 
because it's supposed to correct your actions so that you treat the next person with grace. God does everything, and none of it is for him. I've been working a lot on Hosea. The reason why he allows his people to be taken over by the Assyrians is because they thought that their fortresses and their king would keep them safe. Then they used the backs of the poor to feed the king to keep up the strength of the walls of the city, rather than taking care of the poor. So destroying the city and eliminating the king was not to satisfy God's ego to show that he's the toughest. It's to show the people that there is one that they can and should rely on no matter what. There is one who holds all wisdom and all correct teaching and all mercy. Scripture is manipulating its addressees specifically on this point of hope as it relates to judgment. Because all of us understand that if we're in a very difficult situation politically, say the occupation of Judah by the Roman army, we all know that the appearance of a wrathful avenger brings hope because it can change the situation with respect to the occupation. So this is the sentiment that scripture plays on in the Gospel of Matthew. Everybody wants David's line restored because everybody sees that the Romans control Judea. But the trick in Matthew is the trick in scripture. Matthew is going to show you slowly on that yes indeed Judah does require a liberation, but it's a liberation from itself. We are the ones who are occupying Judea, so to speak, if we extend the metaphor to how it works as a wisdom literature. Right, because we think that if we get rid of Herod and put our own guy in his place, that things are going to improve. All that shows is that we're still slaves to the king, not that we're slaves to God. We're always going to mess this up. So the hope is the same hope that is presented in the Exodus, namely that we are liberated from a human bondage in order to become enslaved to God in the wilderness so that we would not impose yet another human bondage of our own making. That is the hope. That is why the hope is linked to judgment, and that is why the hope is linked to slavery. It's difficult, but God is opposing our tyranny and our cruelty which we are blind to, with his own versions of the same. God is moving against us in Matthew in order to liberate the people of Judah from us. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or you're a Jew in Matthew. Ultimately, God is moving against you. He's moving against you for the sake of Jew and Gentile, and that is the hope. So if you think that this is about sticking it to the man you are going to become like the caricature the Pharisee presents of himself in the text. If you think that this is too negative, you're still going to become like the caricature that the Pharisee presents of himself in the text. Because if you're deflecting the wrath against those other people who you think are wicked, or if you're too fragile in your self-isolation as someone who fancies themselves as being good. Somebody who doesn't want to hear negative speech is somebody who doesn't want to deal with their own sin. They believe that they're good. They like to surround themselves with good things. And, of course, the Lord will refer to such people as whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but inside it's empty. It's full of death. It has no life. Those people, they don't want to hear anything negative because everything is nice. So whether you're shouting at the other guy or asking, why can't we all just be nice to each other? You're both the same character in scripture. You're the Pharisee and the only hope for either of you. The only hope for me and Richard, who are Pharisees, is for John the Baptist to appear and to confront us and to say, you teachers 
on the Bible as Literature podcast, you don't practice what you preach. So don't you ever look down on listeners who don't understand what you're saying about the Greek. You are not better than anyone else. In fact, you're worse because you know better, and this is all you could do is a few Bible studies. That's scripture. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is so fantastic when it comes on the heels of the last verse about the stones raising up children to Abraham. On the one hand, God doesn't need you to produce anything for him. But then he's saying he's going to cut down the trees that don't produce fruit. The reality is we have to produce the fruit for our own sake. It's not for God's sake. If he can raise up children from stones, how easy it would be to raise up fruit from the stones, right? It is for our own sake that we raise up fruit, but it is for our sake also that those who do not produce fruit will be cut down. Ultimately, the podcast is first and foremost for the sake of me and Richard, because we have to do Bible study anyways. We need to do Bible study. We need to challenge each other. Richard and I each bring different capabilities, different sets of knowledge, different backgrounds to this discussion that help illuminate what the text is saying. It's not that we impose our background on the text, but we bring different types of knowledge that help us read this collectively so we can understand objectively what the author is saying and would be saying whether or not we were sitting at table hearing this text. But if you don't realize that our ministry and our personal lives benefit most of all from the work we're doing on the podcast, then you're still not hearing what we're saying as we work through these texts. God does not need the Bible as Literature podcast. He can raise up Bible as Literature podcasts from the stones. Exactly. We have to do it because it's our duty to do the work because this is what was given to us. This is the grace that was given to us. And with the grace comes a teaching and a judgment. The looming judgment forces me to use the grace that was given to me, not for God's sake, not for God's glory, none of this business, only because this is my duty that was handed to me. And let me explain to our listeners how judgment works as hope. The judgment against us is that God doesn't need the podcast. And that if no one ever listened to what we were saying, scripture would still bear fruit. And if we did this in a room and closed the door and didn't record it, and we did it in private, it would still bear fruit because that's how scripture works. So on the one hand, this judgment emphasizes our irrelevance ultimately in the grand scheme of things. But on the other hand, it gives hope to our listener community that all they need is scripture and that they should do their own Bible study with their friends and work through these texts and know and trust with certainty that God is not mocked, and whatever a man sows, he shall also reap. So sow scripture. You don't need the Pharisees to study the Torah. You don't need the Pharisees. You just need the scroll. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And here, Richard, I just want to say one thing. This is ultimately what the Pharisaic movement embodied in the Pauline school is teaching us, that the teacher is unworthy of the teaching. So often I hear modern Christians talk about Christian identity, Christian life, and the Christians bringing the Bible to the world. And unfortunately, Jews also talk this way. We gave 
the prophets to the world. No, you didn't give the prophets to the world and the church did not give the Bible to the world. How can you talk that way when John the Baptist in the Gospel of Matthew is saying that he himself is unworthy of his own teaching? It's of the utmost importance that we realize the reason the judgment puts everyone down, first and foremost the teacher, is so that in Isaiah only the Lord will stand out on the landscape. And there's a reference again to Isaiah later in the section to Isaiah chapter 66, which brings and ushers in this unbearable judgment. The thing that I love about the way that John the Baptist expresses this, think poetically for a minute. We have the plant in the soil, we have the baptism with water, and then we have the baptism with the Holy Ghost. And remember, this is the spirit, this is the wind and fire. So you have earth you have water, you have wind, and you have fire, all the elements coming together. Oftentimes people take this verse out of context, but it has to follow on verse 10 because the plant, if it's going to bear fruit, it needs water. So John the Baptist baptizes with water. You know, people talk about what does baptize mean? It has to do with the ship. Okay, then why does he say with water? If baptizo has to be with water, he mentions with water. Why? Because the plant needs the water to bear fruit. So the first grace is that the root was planted, the seed was planted. The second grace is that John the Baptist comes and waters it. But the third is the wind and the fire, which destroy the crops, which destroy the trees. We here in Minnesota, we see what happens when a strong wind comes through. You see literally trees become uprooted. I was at the cabin last week and I was showing my children where trees used to stand, but the wind pulled it up because they were rooted in sand. With the water comes the hope that maybe it will bear fruit. But once even that doesn't produce fruit, then the wind and the fire clear it away in order to plant a new plant. All these images are very important. You know, we have Holy Spirit and they're capitalized and then fire is lowercase, so we start thinking they're different things. No, we have a plant in soil which we water, but if the water doesn't allow it to bear fruit, then come the fire and the wind to completely take it out so we can finally plant another tree. You even see this on the prairie where people are trying to grow prairie grass. Every few years, you have to burn it in order to get it to grow again. But it's not those same stalks of grass. Those were burnt. It's the seed that they left over that there's hope will regrow into a healthy crop of prairie grass. You need the fire in order for the next generation to come about. The fire doesn't help this generation, but it can help the next generation. And this section, Richard, where we hear these powerful images about wind and fire destroying and the ax laid to the root and so forth, all of this is an elaboration on the basic conclusion of chapter 2, which we have here in chapter 3, which is this point that God can raise up children of Abraham from a stone. And we saw Jesus, the Nazarene, the new branch. We see the co-opting of the Davidic line for the hegemony of the teaching of Jesus Christ. And now in verse 10 forward, verse 10 through 12, we hear John the Baptist essentially explaining his thesis that his addressee is not necessary for the gospel. I really want to stress this point. We all imagine that our churches, our synagogues, our communities are necessary for the Bible. That if we didn't have a church, Father Mark, where would people hear the Bible? Well, that's a very interesting philosophical question, but it's not the question posed in the Gospel of Matthew. The question posed in the Gospel of Matthew is, why shouldn't I take the ax to the root of the tree if it doesn't bear fruit? 
I can plant another tree. Right. Matthew addresses the question. All the educated clergy people left the buildings and the civilization of Jerusalem to go out and hear scripture in the wilderness. And you're telling me we need a church? How does that make sense? This is purposely having the teaching move to the wilderness. Everybody has to move. Jesus had to move from Jerusalem, had to be out in Bethlehem, and then go to Nazareth. And I'm happy you brought that up. It just spurred in my own mind that the fact he was Nazarene means he was branchy that he was of a branch. We have this vegetation metaphor going all the way through here, starting with whom? With Jesus. Jesus is the first one to be called branch-y. He is the one who's the branch because he is Natsari. He's from Nazareth. We think of that as a city, but it's also a thing. It's a branch. He is the branch, and he's going to bear fruit. Then the challenge is, well, if Jesus can bear fruit, what are you producing? We'll see. And if you're not producing... We'll find someone who can. Now, if what we're saying about our irrelevance and your irrelevance and the irrelevance of your community wherever you pray, if what we're saying makes you uncomfortable or angry, good. Because then you are beginning to understand the apocalyptic force of this teaching and how dangerous it was in late antiquity and how threatened the Romans felt. They were threatened that if this gospel is preached... It will bring about the demise of Roman religion. And guess what? It did. As I wrote in my book, the Christians were arrested on the charge of atheism because the Romans correctly understood that any teaching that dismantles the infrastructure of religion and of the gods was dangerous. It's when you live on the horizon of that danger and you understand that you yourself are the problem. And you understand that God doesn't need you or your community, that your community can then become his flock. Otherwise, you're going to make it your flock and you're going to make his teaching subject to your flock. And that's exactly what happened in late antiquity. And that's exactly why the tomb was exploded open in the Gospel of Mark. Because you tried to subjugate the Torah to your Hekel and it didn't produce life. And by the way, when Paul criticizes Israel in chapter 2 of Romans, he is criticizing them because they did not produce children. He has to produce children for them. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, I mentioned Isaiah chapter 66, and of course, Matthew here is quoting both Isaiah and Jeremiah. I'll just read those verses, Richard. In Isaiah 66, verse 24, Then he will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. And this verse is personal and emotional for me because my wife and I lived in Jersey City at the time of September 11th and after we escaped from Manhattan I mean it sounds like a movie title but after we escaped from Manhattan like so many who came back across to Jersey we were near Liberty Park where so many of the corpses of the people who were slaughtered in that terrible day were ferried and you know for me as a man of scripture, even then, I looked around New York City 
and I didn't see the God and Country songs and the patriotism and the billboards through the lens of nationalism. I saw them through the lens of the prophets, especially Jeremiah and Isaiah, and it chilled me to the bone. Because on the one hand, there was this terrible, terrible, brutal injustice of the bombing of those buildings. It was just, it's hard to explain how horrible it was. But no less horrible was the kind of spirit of blindness and vengeance that was already present even when the city was coming together as a community to nurture each other. This is the thing, even nurturing, when it's inward looking, is somehow compromised by Satanas. Because in the end, the same city that was cheering firemen also clapped when they executed their oppressor. If we are scriptural, even if we understand that government does what government does and someone has to be held to account for their actions, I'm not making a political statement about what the president should or should not have done in Afghanistan. I don't care. I'm saying as one subject to the crucified Messiah, I can't cheer even when someone who hates me is executed. This is very important. And you can see how, to the extent we were blind to our history and our relationship with the rest of the world, you can see how that blindness made us blind to the possibility that while in this case we certainly were victims in a very horrible way, we also are oppressors. It's so important. Judgment is our hope. It's only when we see that we too are oppressors, that we too commit wickedness. I'm even bothered by the way people are so shocked by the way children are being treated at the border as though this is some new transgression and we're turning into a darker era in our country. No, we've been doing this kind of stuff for longer than you and I have been alive. I mean, we dropped a nuclear bomb in World War II why suddenly are we shocked that children are being separated from parents? Because we are not honest with ourselves and we are not opening our hearts to the criticism proposed by John the Baptist in the Gospel of Matthew. You know, with the example that you brought up of 9-11 and these other things, these, if we see with the eyes of Scripture, are judgment. And I'm not saying the way that the televangelists talk about this is judgment against the United States, because what they mean to say is if the United States were good, then this wouldn't happen. Which is nonsense. This is literature. I'm saying that, if I may, Richard, I'm saying what you're about to say that if you choose to view the world around you the way Scripture is challenging you to view it, through the lens of literary metaphor, then something as destructive of 9-11 can be life-giving. Exactly. It can be life-giving. And there was this glimmer of hope that I had at that time where I said, you know, if for every body that was pulled out of the wreckage of 9-11, we gave $100,000 to an Iraqi hospital, we would have no more problems in the Middle East. Instead, we decided to bomb Iraq. That was what we learned from the experience. And here's the difference. If we understand it as judgment, then the winnowing fork is God's to divide the wheat and the chaff. And we better be sure that we are wheat and that we're producing fruit according to God's law. However, what we decided is that we were going to take up the winnowing fork and we were going to decide who was just and who was unjust. And 
it's amazing to me because Hosea, I keep going back to Hosea, keeps bringing up very subtly events that happen in the course of the biblical story of Israel. And if anyone wants to read this, it's all throughout the book of Judges. When human beings try to be just, they always overstep their bounds. They always go too far. And sure enough, during this event, we were attacked by people who lived in Afghanistan with individuals who came from Saudi Arabia, and we destroyed Iraq. And the first leader to fall in the whole post-9-11 aftermath was the president of Iraq, who demonstrably had nothing to do with it. Now, I'm not saying we should or shouldn't have put Saddam Hussein on trial. We're not talking politics. We do not care about politics. And I'll say it a third time because I'm Eastern Orthodox. We are not talking about politics. What I'm saying is that our rulers fell into the pattern of humanity, which we saw from the book of Judges all the way to the 21st century. It's the same thing. Human beings don't know how to be just. They can't be just because, as I said at the beginning, it's about them and about their egos. And when it comes to God and God's justice, hopefully it can deflate our egos so that we no longer count on our own misguided belief that we can be just, but instead understand that judgment is against us and that judgment is just and that what we see is hopefully going to drive us to repentance and bear fruit. And if it doesn't, then we can have hope that the next generation will bear fruit according to God's law. And the promise of God's law is that if we don't listen and the next generation doesn't listen and the next generation doesn't listen, God will continue to take the axe to the root of the tree until Yemen is transformed from Gehenna as it is today into the paradise of Eden. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.